it's a meaningful equivalence between uh, an event happening outside in the outer world and something happening inside. When you want to uh, talk about this in a very uh, scientific way, you're in trouble because you will just try uh, to, well, a rational person will just brush that off and say, well, this is just a coincidence. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. So today on the show, we have the fascinating topic of Carl Jung's concept of synchronicity. The majority of us, of course, have experienced some kind of meaningful coincidences in our lives. A few examples from mine, um, perhaps the right person to help with a problem got in touch out of the blue after ages at just the right time to help solve your problem, or maybe the right book randomly ended up in front of you when you hit a block with a certain question. Or also quite common is a, you know, a big disaster happens that creates complete upheaval in your life, which in retrospect, it turns out, without that disaster, you would never have arrived at a certain really important change in your life. That's also happened to me. So, of course, we've got no way of scientifically testing or falsifying either a potential coordination between these causally unconnected events nor uh, of testing the meaning of those coincidences to the individual. But despite that, uh, famous psychoanalyst Carl Jung thought that meaning could be as rigorous and objective as logical deduction. And for him, that set apart synchronicities from mere statistical coincidences. So firmly planting ourselves on the subjective experience-based side of the scientific spectrum, today we're going to be exploring what Jung meant by a synchronicity and the evidence in physics that might help to explain at least the possibility of a non-local connection across space and time or, or between the interpsychic world, as Stanislav Grof puts it, and the material reality. We're going to be talking to uh, the psychologist Monica Wickman um, about Jung's collective unconscious concept. So listeners, please go off and find that episode if you want to familiarize, familiarize yourself with that crucial idea, because I think all of these Jungian concepts are going to become more and more important as we head into the second series as well. But back to synchronicity, who better to explain the relevant physics than the executive director of the Los Angeles C.G. Jung Institute and theoretical physicist Christoph Lumuel. So having moved out of high energy quantum physics when he moved to the USA in 2007, he is passionate about the connections between physics and psychology and incredibly knowledgeable about the history of science. So I personally am feeling really lucky to have the opportunity to speak to a scientist so uniquely placed on this quite precarious bridge between the science of mind and the science of physical reality. Bolstered by his uh, broad perspective on the history of science and philosophy, it just makes me feel a lot safer wading into this ideological minefield. So everybody, strap in tight and let's go. Dr. Christoph Lemuel, welcome to Chasing Consciousness. Thank you for coming on the show. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me, Freddie. Uh, it's a great, great pleasure. Um, 
Christoph, I am always so curious to ask the guests about the first inklings of deep reflection, things that they remember having a really big influence on their lives, their first conscious thoughts, if you like, when they were teenagers. What were the ideas or, or books, perhaps, that really flung open the door of questioning for you personally? Well, there's a, a few books that I could mention. Uh, I was first extremely passionate about Marvel comic books. Uh, <laughs> I found one of these books when I was maybe 11. And then it really opened a whole uh, universe for me. Uh, I started to uh, collect these books. First, it was in French, uh, but soon I found a, a bookstore where I could uh, buy them in, uh, in English. So what I did is uh, I was 11 at that time. Uh, so I started to learn English by myself. And at the end of the year, I could, I could uh, read uh, novels in English. <laughs> so it really opened something to me. But uh, there was something really fascinating about uh, superheroes for me, because uh, if you look at Marvel comic uh, books, uh, what you have is a lot of scientists, a lot of people who just uh, either had an accident due to science like Peter Parker, or decided to, to work in science to, to change things. And so for me, it was a kind of, uh, I could see that science was very important, uh, something that could almost uh, open a new mythical dimension. And uh, I, I was really passionate about that. Uh, Any particular characters? Because Doctor Strange, of course, is a very weird example, isn't he? I mean, there are so many. Was there a particular yeah, character? Yeah. Well, the main characters that I was really interested in were Peter Parker, of course, uh, Spider-Man, Iron Man, the X-Men, uh, <clears throat> all these uh, really very special people. Um, Doctor, Doctor Strange was not one of my favorites, uh, but uh, uh, I mean, it's something that I could read once in a while, but not, not, not very often. Mm. But yeah, for me, it was really the scientific side. Dr. Strange doesn't have a lot of side, uh, science. It's, more, most, uh, it's most, mostly about spirituality and what kind of powers. I know that uh, <clears throat> the new movies talk about the quantum realm. <clears throat> so they, they try to spin something about Dr. Strange and the quantum realm. But uh, in my time, it was not there. <clears throat> So you see, actually, in the new movies, they try to talk about quantum mechanics and how it can introduce you to this new dimension of uh, reality. And so, so the first introduction for me was really uh, Marvel comic books. Um, then, <clears throat> after that, around fifteen, I started to write poetry. So it was a very profound experience for me. It was uh, I started to write. And I had no clue where the words were coming from. Uh, and my poems were about big topics like death, light, um, darkness, nature. <clears throat> I've been always very contemplative and uh, looking at things uh, around me. Because uh, when I was a kid, I had asthma, so I couldn't really run with my friends. I was just watching nature around me. And so I was really an introvert. Um, and uh, this is a kind of thing that really fascinated me. And at that time, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what my poems were about. 
they were not great poems. They were just things coming out of me. And uh, at some point, uh, I saw that one of my teachers was, uh, um, I, I was giving my poems to her, and she was a little bit worried because it was a little bit strange to have such images. And <clears throat> she was a little bit scared. And so she, she, she tried to see if I had issues or problems. And I didn't feel I had any problems at all. Uh, but yet one day I uh, decided to give some of my uh, poems to uh, the mother of a friend who uh, was a psychologist. And she didn't say anything about my poems. She gave me the book, Jung's book, Man and His Symbols. Oh, wow. What a connection. <laughs> so, what a connection from poetry to Jung's symbols. Brilliant. And so it was, I was 16 at that time, and I really found my language at that time. I, I knew that what I was doing is tapping into the collective unconscious mm -hmm. and really um, express uh, deep things that were about maybe to happen. Um, and, and so I kept these poems uh, very dearly uh, during rough times after that, because they were really a kind of light uh, in the darkness. Um, so, and at the end of this um, uh, book, actually, it's not only written by Jung, it's written also by uh, a lot of Jungian analysts, including Marius von Franz, who was Jung's uh, best, uh, most gifted student. Uh, there's a, a conclusion about science and the unconscious. So not only did I uh, see that there was um, um, something called the unconscious that had an experience of, but also that it was connected to science and that there was maybe a connection between uh, science, especially uh, modern science, quantum mechanics, and also uh, the unconscious. And it was really fascinating to me. So it really opened a big door for me. And I remember that in high school, I was doing the association test with my uh, friends, uh, trying to see what was in their mind uh, this way. <laughs> I was doing all kinds of things like that. <clears throat> and I was thinking about uh, going to, uh, uh, I wanting to, wanted to, to become a psychiatrist maybe, but I decided I was always fascinated by science. So I decided to go to college and study math and physics. But still, uh, during that time, I really trained in, in the science and mathematics, but the psychology was always in the background. Um, to the point that, for example, when I got my PhD uh, thesis, the night I uh, defended my dissertation, uh, um, had that dream saying, well, you know, uh, you had your PhD in physics, now it's time to have your PhD in psychology. And I was like, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, just on the same day. You say yeah. defended your uh, PhD. What do you mean by defended in that sense? You have to present oh, it. Is, yeah, you have to present your dissertation, uh, what you worked on during your uh, uh, PhD. So I was working in particle physics. So you have to, to present your dissertation in front of your peers. And uh, so I had a panel with uh, pretty um, good people. Uh, uh, so one of my, uh, um, the person in the room was uh, someone who, was one of the founders of string theory. And so we had a, uh, it was, it was a, a good event. Um, and so, yeah, that night I was exhausted. It was really a long uh, uh, um, 
few years of training uh, uh, in physics. At the same time, I remember that my PhD supervisor was interested in Jung because I told him about Jung. So during, uh, uh, when he was teaching, he would teach me physics during the day. And in the evening, we would just get out of uh, 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 the campus and go to a cafe and, and speak and talk about dreams and, and things like that. So it was, uh, he was teaching me physics and I was teaching, me, teaching him Jung um, and dreams. And, and how interesting that there was no relief whatsoever. You were being called immediately through your dreams to go on to do psychology, which of course you did later on. How interesting. Yeah. So Christoph, today, before we get into this, the fascinating evidence in modern physics that, that might do something to illuminate Jung's idea of synchronicity, let's get a really clear definition for the listeners of what Jung was meaning when he, he coined this term. Well, Jung thought about this idea for almost 40 years. Actually, he mentioned the fact that the first time he had uh, this idea or thought about this idea was when he had dinner with Einstein around 1909. Um, uh, had, Einstein was in Zurich at that time. And so he had dinner with, uh, uh, with their dinner together. And so uh, Einstein was talking about um, the relativity of space and time. And so uh, Jung started to think about, oh, maybe there is a kind of relativity also uh, within the psyche. So, so it was, uh, and after that, he talked about synchronicity in the 1920s, uh, and he didn't really want to write anything until Wolfgang Pauli, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, asked him to do it. No way. So he, wanted to, he wanted really to, to uh, uh, make good with his promise, but at the same time, he felt really inadequate about talking about all these things. And he knew that it was also a kind of danger for him because it can also be spin in a very uh, strange way sometimes, uh, some kind of new agey uh, way of looking at things. And so he really, he really wanted to stick to the facts. And so the way he defined real, uh, synchronicity, uh, I was going to say relativity, <laughs> um, is that it's a meaningful equivalence between uh, an event happening outside in the outer world and something happening inside. And so, um, so maybe what we can do is um, uh, give an example, the famous example of the scarab, scarab uh, to, to uh, describe different aspects of synchronicity. This is actually how uh, the way uh, you defined it. Um, uh, if you read this on synchronicity published in 1952, uh, it gives examples, and so it's very uh, useful uh, to, to really perceive what he was trying to say. So this example uh, happened in his consulting room. Um, one day, uh, one of his patients was extremely irrational. Uh, at some point, I think Jung describes her as uh, being stuck in a kind of uh, intellectual alembic. And uh, <clears throat> she was very Cartesian, she was very rational. And she was uh, not open to any argument. Uh, she knew things. Uh, she was pretty rational and she could really argue very well. 
And so one day she had this dream with a scarab in, uh, in the dream. And so she went to, to Jung and talked about the, this dream. This is a type of beetle, correct? The scarab? Yeah. Yes. The scarab, yeah. And then suddenly uh, Jung was listening to the dream, heard a tapping uh, on the window behind him. And so got distracted and decided to uh, go to the window. And he opened the window. And there is a kind of beetle, a kind of scarab uh, that came in and just caught it. And he said, well, here is a scarab. And he showed it to his uh, patient. And she was really thunderstruck. She was really shocked. And then uh, he explained, of course, what the meaning of the scarab meant. And so you see here uh, uh, what I mean by equivalence. You have the, uh, the image of the scarab in the dream that happens to, 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 to that patient. And then <clears throat> another scarab outside came into the room and decided to show itself. So you have two completely uh, disconnected events, uh, two uh, causal chains. One, which is, well, what's happening with the patient in our dreams and going to see Jung and trying to maybe argue about it and be very rational. And, and Jung was, um, <clears throat> and the other chain is the, uh, well, the, just a beetle, the other scarab in the garden coming and trying to get into that dark room, which is pretty odd. <laughs> and, and of course, well, the, the person uh, who really put, uh, helped put the things together was Jung, uh, deciding to open the window, get the scar up and show it to, to, the, to, to the patient. So you have the two uh, equivalent images, uh, uh, which are meeting, colliding, if you want. And that makes a very, uh, profound, that made a very profound impression on the, this patient. And what is the meaning of the scarab out of interest? What is the symbolism? Yeah. So exactly, this is the main point. You need to really uh, see what the meaning is. And so the, the scarab is something connected to Egyptian mythology. If you go to, uh, if you read the Amduat, for example, you see that the sun is going down uh, into the underground, the underworld, and it almost is it's almost in danger of uh, being destroyed. There's all kind of dangers, all kind of things that happens to it. And but still it goes under in the Amduat and it goes under in the underworld. And the, the moment when uh, uh, the sun rises again is uh, symbolized by the scarab. So it's really the uh, the sun coming out of the, the underworld the renewal, the rebirth, if you want. Hmm. And you can see that in, uh, in dreams, I had dreams and synchronicities uh, with the scarab too, which is pretty amazing because you would think that, well, uh, it was only maybe Jung's uh, uh, symbol or something that he made up, but it was not like that. You have a kind of collective dimension of the uh, symbolism of the scarab. Um, renewal, rebirth, which can manifest with other symbols, of course, but uh, the scarab is one of them. And Jung is quite um, 
later on, as you say, at the start, he didn't really like talking about things that couldn't be verified scientifically. And then he sort of opened up as, as more scientists took interest. But he was very keen to say when he was talking about these kind of synchronicities that these patients didn't know about these symbols in advance because obviously the explanation would be, ah, oh, you'd read about it or it had been in a story or, you know, your, your, your mother had mentioned it or something. But, you know, he went to quite a length to be sure that the people experiencing these symbols that were clearly relevant in the analysis process had no experience of that symbol before. Is that true? Yeah, well, sometimes people had, uh, knew about this symbolism, but uh, in other cases, you would just uh, uh, a patient would come to to Jung and had a, a short dream or tell a dream, and you would just go to his library and say, "Okay, this is your dream," and show a book uh, or an image coming from all times. And so, it was probably absolutely no chance for these patients to know about them. Uh, it, it's something that really brings a dimension of reality, objectivity, and knowing that you're not the only one uh, with that image, but that image has resonated with a lot of people before, and it can be found in books. Um, and so you have to be uh, very, that's actually the art of the analyst, the Jungian analyst to know about the meanings of things. Uh, because you you can just provide the meaning when people come to uh, therapy with a dream uh, with certain images, mm. and you can if the dream is uh, um, a big dream with collective symbols, you can help them with that. Mm. For example, <clears throat> I can give you another example of synchronicity if you want. I think we need a few just to get our head around it because it is such an extraordinary idea. Yeah, it's it's. It's a synchronicity told by uh, Marie-Louis von Franz, um, uh, one of Jung's best students. And so she was, uh, she talked in a book about uh, a psychotic patient um, who one day uh, had really a, a break and decided to uh, exercise the demon out of his uh, wife with an ax. So <clears throat> of course the wife, uh, uh, was really scared and she called the police and she called uh, the uh, psychiatrist too. And they came to, to, to the house. And so there was a light, there was a light in the hallway. And, um, and so when these people, the police and the psychiatrist uh, came in, the light just exploded. And uh, <clears throat> the psychotic man said, well, you see, it's like, uh, I'm the savior, you see, uh, um, it's like when Christ uh, was crucified, uh, there was an eclipse of the sun. And so he thought that it was a, this kind of, in his delusion, he was just making a meaning that was not really there. And so, well, everything went well eventually. Uh, uh, the, the person went to the hospital. And two days later, Marius von Franz came uh, to, to see him and his wife. And she explained uh, what happened. She was the one who brought the real meaning and saying, well, you know, uh, a light bulb is not the sun. A light bulb is something made by man. It's a tool. It's something that is uh, uh, man-made. And so it's not, it's not the cosmic uh, sun. And so it's more likely to be uh, 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 
a symbol, something symbolizing ego consciousness. Yeah. At the same time that he had this break, psychotic break, where all the light exploded, his ego consciousness completely was uh, broken into pieces. And so it was a real sobering effect on this person who realized, oh, so I'm not the savior. So it helps uh, with, uh, um, during therapy sometimes uh, to find the right meaning. Uh, mm. And, so and, and I can't help thinking the fact that it's an external thing, the fact that this yeah. is outside of the mind can particularly help with the therapeutical element because it's not in, you know, in your imagination or whatever. Yeah, yeah, suddenly you meet reality. You meet something solid. And, um, and of course, you cannot say, well, my dream created that event or the scarab, for example, in Jung's uh, case, uh, uh, heard about the dream and decided to visit. There's absolutely <laughs> no thinkable connection. It's really uh, no causal, uh, thinkable causal connection. I mean, there's a kind of a causal connection, something that happens. And of course, after that, when you want to uh, talk about this in a very uh, scientific way, you're in trouble because you will just try uh, to, well, a rational person will just brush that off and say, well, this is just a coincidence. Well, this is where, this is a great moment to bring us forward because that was my, coming into the physics now, that was my first question was really, am I correct in saying that, you know, we can be clear that there is no causal connection because if, you know, now we're starting to see in physics that there are some non-local phenomena um, which are clearly non-causal as well. So that was really my starting point of starting to think that there may be a connection with some of the discoveries in quantum mechanics uh, and potentially also in the theory of relativity. Interesting that that um, that Einstein and Pauli were involved in, in, in Jung's bringing this idea forward. Can you list for us the research in modern physics that for you most supports, I guess the word would be a non-local understanding of reality that could imply the existence of synchronicity as a real phenomena purely outside of the subjective meaning element that made it particularly useful, that makes it particularly useful for therapy. I'm thinking of it actually as a real phenomena um, perhaps a good place to start might be Pauli, because you said that he actually came to Jung and said, listen, you need mm -hmm. to elaborate this. What was Pauli, what had he noticed that he thought might be reflected in some of Jung's thinking about the mind? Well, Pauli came to Jung because he had some problems, um, uh, psycholog psychological problems. So it was uh, the first uh, way he met with Jung, uh, so he was uh, drinking a lot, he was getting into fights, and so it was not very serious at that time. Uh, so he tried to find some help to, to, to uh, go away from this. Mm. Um, but Pauli was a very, very sharp mind. Uh, some people say, well, you think that Einstein is the smartest people, the smartest person on, on the planet. No, it's, you're wrong, it's Pauli. 
was really extremely focused on things. He could find a mistake uh, uh, very easily uh, in papers. Sometimes he would just uh, find papers so boring that you would say, he, uh, he said at some point, it's not even wrong. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's right, but who cares? <laughs> so he was extremely critical. Uh, he was called, I think, the whip of God or something like that. He had this kind of surname. And so he was so critical that, well, his mind was uh, sometimes going uh too far in, in one direction. So he had asked for help. And, um, and so he met uh, first with someone uh, that uh, was uh, a student of Jung's uh, because Jung didn't want to have anything with, to deal with him. And then eventually uh, Pauli started to, to, to go with, uh, with Jung. Um, and so all the dreams of Pauli can be found in Jung's book, Psychology and Alchemy. So, uh, uh, Jung talks about the, a young physicist and you see all the dreams uh, that he had uh, 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 during a period of time. And this physicist is uh, Pauli, Wolfgang Pauli. So Wolfgang Pauli had a very rich um, inner life. He had a lot of dreams and he was very devoted to his dreams. He was also extremely open to uh, parapsychology. Uh, because he had witnessed a lot of things. Uh, there's something called the Pauli effect. I don't know if you heard about it. It's a kind of effect that was surrounding Pauli. Each time, uh, um, well, all kind of very strange happening would, hap uh, would, would happen around him. Experience, experiments would fall apart or things like that. Physical experiments would fall apart. And so it was, it was, you had this reputation of if you want an experiment to work, you need to have Pauli away from here. Otherwise, everything is going to fall apart. At some point, there's an anecdote of uh, uh, someone making an experiment, an experiment very important in quantum mechanics. And he said, well, it didn't work. The whole thing collapsed. But thank God it's not uh, because of your presence, because you are not there. <clears throat> And the experiment happened in Göttingen in Germany. And, uh, and Pauli uh, uh, sent a letter and said, well, uh, when did that experiment happen? And so uh, the person who made the experiment said, well, it was that day, uh, that time. And he said, well, I was on my way to visit Niels Bohr and I was in a train and I had to stop at that time in Göttingen. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the kind of thing that was surrounding Pauli. Uh, uh, all kind of crazy things would just fall apart and, and crash uh, when he was around. Uh, so he was very aware of um, uh, the possibility of um, non-local effects. Physical effects. <laughs> and so, can you tell us where he'd got up to in his work at this point? Like more or less, where had quantum theory got to when he started these discussions with, with you? It was around 1930, 1940, uh, he studied that, yeah. And the essay on synchronicity was published in 1952. So they had a, a very long uh, connection together until uh, Pauli's death. So at that time, well, most of uh, the foundation of quantum mechanics was already uh, there. Um, the, the equations of quantum mechanics were uh, created around 1927 
uh, with uh, the work of Heisenberg and Schrodinger. And so the foundations were really uh, uh, of quantum mechanics were already set. After that, there was a lot of work on trying to combine quantum mechanics with relativity. Uh, it was the next uh, big task. <clears throat> so Pauli was working on this, uh, on other problems. Uh, so he is a person who uh, created the, uh, the name of the neutrino, for example. Uh, the neutrino is a, a very elusive particle that doesn't interact with anything, uh, well, except weakly with uh, other particles like the electrons. And, um, and so, so how he was very distressed at that time when he found this particle that he created because he thought that he had committed the uh, biggest sin uh, uh, you could commit, which is to uh, create out of thin air, air a new particle that uh, just because you wanted to keep uh, the, uh, the invariance of energy in processes uh, 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 working. So, so he thought that it was uh, a big mistake, but at the same time he did it. And so now we know that there's neutrinos everywhere. <laughs> so it was probably crossed by neutrinos right now and we don't even, we're not aware of it. So he created all kind of ideas like that. Uh, there's um, also um, other things uh, that he did, which are very impressive. Um, I don't want to give the list of all the, the, the accomplishment of Pauli, but he's really one of the founders of quantum mechanics. The, the reason I asked um, Christoph was I was thinking perhaps there was something that was troubling him that uh, about the very nature of quantum mechanics, because I know particularly at that time, uh, you know, Schrodinger and Planck, Max Planck, were, were really concerned with the implications, uh, yeah. some of the issues with, with the observer interacting with the system, uh, and just the presence of consciousness seeming to have this, this uh, inextricable effect. Um, do we have any record between them in their interaction with uh, with Jung, that, that that was sort of something that that was troubling Pauli, and that he felt that some of Jung's ideas might might shed some light on that, or um, is that just not the case? Yeah, so Pauli was someone who was very sharp. He knew he didn't want to mix uh, completely uh, quantum mechanics with uh, uh, psychology. At the same time, he felt that there was a kind of um, connection. Uh, probably you would say that quantum mechanics was not complete and something else was to be found underneath. He was disagreeing with Einstein uh, that what you would find uh, um, beyond quantum mechanics was something that was uh, uh, restoring causality because causality in quantum mechanics is pretty much gone. Uh, there's all kind of effects in quantum mechanics uh, like uh, entanglement and other things that really show you that uh, causality is not is not is not something tenable uh, with modern physics. <clears throat> and so Einstein was uh, pretty worried about that, and so he had a lot of conversations with Pauli, uh, but Pauli was pretty comfortable with this kind of uh, a causality. Uh, uh, what Pauli was trying to uh, do is to bridge uh, psychology and uh, um, uh, quantum mechanics or 
physics. I don't know if it will be quantum mechanics, maybe something beyond quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. But he was trying to make a bridge between the two. So his way of doing things was to try to create a neutral language, a neutral, neutral language that would uh, allow us to talk about quantum mechanics on one side and psychology on the other. So something that was not a psychological language and not uh, something that was uh, quantum mechanical. So he was trying to make analogies between what you find uh, in quantum mechanics and what you find, for example, in, in quantum physics. And so he was trying to make that bridge through a language. Um, so it was his main attempt to, to bridge things. <clears throat> so it was it was quite interesting. If you read uh, his analogies, they're quite fascinating. Uh, Can you give us a couple of examples of, of? I mean, is is this something that he worked on together with Jung uh, over the years, or this was something he brought to Jung and said, "What do you think?" Well, he didn't really. Uh, Jung was not really uh, uh, didn't really know well quantum mechanics. He had a, a kind of uh, um, way of understanding it, which was um, basically the understanding of someone who has no background in physics. Mm -hmm. So he was, uh, he was, it was not very clear. For example, Pauli was saying, well, when you talk about physics, uh, it looks like uh, 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 the dream of a physics, uh, what I would dream in, uh, in my dreams, uh, which is uh, about physics. It's a kind of dreamy way of doing physics. <laughs> it's not very, uh, it's not very uh, sharp and, and clear and, and conscious. So, and uh, well, actually Jung and Pauli had very tense connection uh, sometimes and Jung could tell uh, Pauli have absolutely no mind for psychology. Uh, so it was sometimes pretty rough between the two. But at the same time, they were really discussing ideas about, for example, something non-observable. Uh, is reality all there in space and time? Or is there something that is non-visible that can really have an impact on what's happening in space and time? So it's a kind of ideas that were, uh, they were discussing. Uh, they were talking about the role of numbers uh, because in quantum mechanics, uh, numbers are sh uh, showing everywhere, all kind of uh, strange numbers. Uh, they were talking about this. They were talking about dreams. Uh, they were talking especially uh, about Pauli's dreams because he, he felt that there was something where he had to get out of the closet as a physicist, as a, someone supporting Jung. Uh, I mean because uh, he felt that there was another uh, reality uh, that was around us that was not purely physical. At the same time, he didn't want to talk too much about this to his uh, physicist uh, peers, mm. because he thought that he was part of this academia, he was a Nobel Prize in physics, and he didn't want to uh, go too far into what Jung was uh, saying. At the same time, for example, the, the book on synchronicity that uh, Jung published in 1952 was published with an essay uh, by Pauli on uh, Kepler, uh, uh, where he showed that, well, something happened during that time, uh, the scientific revolution that was pretty uh, profound, the transition from the Aristotelian point of view to the modern point of view. 
And Pauli was of the idea that um, physicists should, uh, modern physicists should not only do physics, but they should also keep track of uh, their dreams and all the imagination that really, uh, uh, um, that they had during this creative process, because it can bring some insight about what's happening. So he felt that there should be a balance between psychology and physics, because physics is also a creative process. It's not just about discovering something outside, out there. It's also about, um, it's a creative process in the mind. Why do we see uh, what we see out there? And can this change? And so he felt that the, the two had to, to come together. Interesting in a way that both of them were resisting the 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 call to talk about this thing because they were both in the academia the academic fields they were both uh, very scientifically minded and evidence based they were both writing academic papers and books um and yet in their encounter from two such different disciplines they sort of inspired each other as you said to sort of come out of the closet Christoph, um, we're going to take a break in a moment because we're coming up to the hour. Uh, listeners, uh, obviously, the um, collective unconscious is a very important Jungian idea connected to all of this. We're not going into too much detail about that because we have a show uh, with Dr. Monica Wickman uh, devoted completely to the collective unconscious. So do go back to that show if you want to hear more. But do not go away because please come back for part two um, because Christoph is just getting started on what I think is is a plethora of very, very interesting evidence in um, in the physics that took place from Pauli and, and Einstein's time onwards until now, all of which I think gives us some hints to the potential. Uh, I don't want to go any further than using the word potential for some form of, of, of a non-local understanding that pushes beyond the limits of space and time that could have... I don't want to use the word causal, but could have some connecting uh, uh, ability to to allow a, a, a phenomenon at such a synchronicity to actually uh, be real in some sense. So um, thank you very much, Christoph, for this extraordinary uh, insight into what synchronicity is and these beautiful examples. And we'll be right back with part two. So listeners, please do not go away. everybody and welcome back to part two of this episode of Chasing Consciousness with Dr. Christophe Lemoyel, who is the uh, executive director of the CG uh, Jung Institute in Los Angeles. Welcome back, Christophe. Well, thank you, Freddie. So we had an extraordinary part one, listeners. You must go back and have a listen. Uh, Christoph did a brilliant job of introducing what Carl Jung meant when he coined the term of synchronicity and how uh, he resisted quite a lot actually bringing it out because he was very much of an academic uh, psychiatrist publishing academic papers. He didn't want to uh, bring forward such a... Uh, a potentially misunderstandable uh, 
concept. And yet, of all people, it was in fact Wolfgang Pauli, uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist who encouraged him to do it. So an absolutely brilliant episode uh, in part one. And just at the end there, we really got into the detail of um, Pauli and Jung's uh, exchange, which went on for many, many years and culminated, I think, with uh, with with Jung finally publishing a book, uh, which Christoph told us, in fact, Wolfgang Pauli even uh, wrote an essay as part of that book. So I want to pick it up from there. The question that we're examining is, is there any research in modern physics that can really help us to understand a possible explanation for why we experience this phenomena of synchronicity, even if we can't prove it in, in any sort of traditional sense of the scientific word. Let's pick it up from entanglement. Um, Christoph, I believe entanglement was was discovered quite early in quantum theory, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was um, a consequence of quantum mechanics um, um, that was... Um, brought uh, to the fore by Einstein. <clears throat> Einstein, uh, Podolsky and Rosen uh, wrote a paper in 1936, I think, uh, uh, to show that um, there is something happening in quantum mechanics uh, because of the wave nature of reality. Um, so that uh, experiment that they proposed was refined after that by David Bohm. And uh, uh, <clears throat> later it was tested <clears throat> by a physicist. And so this is what became entanglement. But basically the idea is that uh, two things, two particles that interact uh, uh, in a quantum mechanical way at some point and become almost one, uh, when you separate them and make them uh, go to a very uh, big distance between uh, uh, the two of them, um, maybe light years, maybe whatever, um, <clears throat> If you do an experiment on one side of the particle, well, you will have exactly uh, in a non-causal way, uh, the same, uh, well, actually something opposite, but there's a correlation between the two uh, measurement that you will make on one particle or the other, which suggests that when things uh, interact in the quantum mechanical uh, way at some point, well, they always give that connection uh, uh, whether you separate them or not. So it's it's connected to the wave nature of reality. Uh, you think that things are made only of particles, but there is also the wave connecting them, which is always present, uh, whether you separate them or not, they still make, they still uh, form the same system, if you want. But just, just to be clear here, just to be clear here, that's not a message. We're not talking about a wavelength like a radio wave communicating this change, yeah. is it? It's instantaneously happening at the same time. Yeah, so that's actually exactly, exactly the point that Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen were, were making. If you separate these particles far away, then you make uh, uh, far away from each other. And if you make the experiment, between uh, uh, well, with the two particles, so that there's no possibility of uh, a message sent even at the speed of light, uh, which is maximum you can reach. Then uh, there's no causal link. You cannot have a causal link because the uh, fastest causal link you can make is uh, using the speed of light. <clears throat> so if you separate the particles and they still are connected, then it means that the connection is a causal. 
Well, you mentioned in part one that Einstein was quite troubled by some of the sort of seemingly non-causal effects in quantum mechanics. Presumably, this troubled him even more. Yeah, it was for him one of the things that really um, made him worry about quantum mechanics. It was really a spooky action at at the distance. Uh, This is what what he was calling uh, this entanglement. Uh, something that really is spooky, uh, scary, something that may threaten the whole edifice of, uh, of physics. And he thought that there was maybe uh, something uh, that would complete quantum mechanics. He thought that quantum mechanics was incomplete, that there was something that would explain why these two particles uh, could connect without being, uh, uh, without transmitting information. So for example, a kind of hidden variable, a kind of variable that would really show that they're connected anyway, even if uh, you separate them. And so this idea of the hidden variable was tested. uh, Actually, um, there was uh, John Bell uh, in the 70s, I think, uh, uh, created um, uh, a kind of experiment uh, setting to all kind of inequalities to show if uh, Einstein was right and if there were some hidden variables or if quantum mechanics was right. And there was no hidden variables, but uh, you could could see this kind of connection. And so this experiment was made later uh, by different people. And so it proved that quantum mechanics was right and uh, the, the idea of hidden variable was not. So it could be determined experimentally that quantum mechanics is right and there's no hidden variable. And what were the implications of that? That there is a causality in the universe. There is something which is a causal, that things can uh, be connected, but not related uh, through space. So it means that maybe space is not that fundamental. And Einstein himself, Einstein himself had discovered with his theory of general relativity some serious problems with the linearity of space and time itself. Perhaps you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, Einstein was um, well created uh, his real, a theory of relativity, and it came at a time when um, it was at the uh, beginning of the 20th century. At that time, um, <clears throat> people were well had created all kind of new uh, clocks that were uh, more and more precise, so they could measure things uh, in a better way. Uh, they could also uh, uh, things were getting faster and faster. You had trains and you had the telegraphs, and so you had a whole um, big pressure for people to measure things in a better way with uh, more precise clocks. And so you cannot think about relativity without uh, thinking about clocks because it's really about trying to synchronize things. And uh, Einstein realized that uh, some of the paradoxes uh, found uh, about the speed of light was uh, invariant, was something that was not changing depending on the point of reference, depending on the observer, wherever if, uh, at some point people thought that uh, if uh, classical physics was really working well, if you go, if you change the observer, you will see some differences uh, uh, in the speed of things. 
But light was very different in that sense. It was something absolute. People realized that um, uh, there was something uh, invariant with light. It was a kind of uh, uh, a constant of nature. Well, this is how they explained it later. But at that time, people thought that there was maybe a kind of ether that was really the medium of, uh, of well, light was propagating that was really creating something special about light. And it's uh, Einstein followed by uh, Lawrence who, uh, no, Minkowski, sorry, who uh, uh, saw that, well, it was um, not that, we had to think about uh, space and time as one, space-time, something which is very uh, different than um, 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 uh, Newton had said when he was saying that uh, 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 time was absolute and flowing uh, um, uniformly without, um, irrespective of what was happening uh, to the observer. So it was it was uh, something that was um, uh, uh, new, uh, completely new, and so there's all kind of paradoxes uh, that came out of this. For example, the twin paradox. Um, uh, i pretty. Uh, I like this paradox pretty much because I have twin sons and there's seven now, and so this paradox is very strange. It really shows the relativity of uh, of time. And this paradox is the following. <clears throat> Imagine that my twins, for example, uh, one of my twins uh, uh, decides one day to go to space. And uh, they decide, for example, to leave on the day of their birthday, the 20th birthday. And, and so uh, one of the twins decide to go to space and go to visit another planet. And this technology is good enough and you can go very fast, almost to the, uh, close to the speed of light. And so, well, they say, well, let's meet uh, in 10 years from now. And so they just have a clock uh, in their, uh, well, one of the twins is gonna have a clock in the spaceship and the other one is gonna have a clock on the planet Earth. And so <clears throat> the person, uh, the twin going to, to the other planet says, well, uh, he's gonna travel for five years and come back in five years. And so we're gonna meet for the 30th birthday. And so the, the one, uh, the twin going to space does that and 10 years later, he comes back. But he realizes that, well, 40 years, uh, 20 years have uh, happened on earth. Uh, uh, and so actually the, the twin on earth is celebrating his 40th birthday. So it's a kind of physical effect like that, which is and all the numbers I gave you are completely made up of course, mm -hmm. but uh, this is a kind of thing that you can test in labs. You can see the effect of time being relative uh, if you go uh, close to the speed of light. Um, um, this is something that we cannot see when we move slowly uh, relative to the speed of light, but the faster you go and the more you see that effect becoming completely relevant and very large. Um, so it's very, very strange to see that time can be elastic like that. It's something um, mind-blowing if you think about it. Well, we're definitely going to be doing a, an entire show on the the implications of the theory of relativity, both in this case, as you say, for motion, but also the 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 big one, gravity, which you know is is what everybody's desperately trying to crack. But moving on, um, Doctor Lemuel, what? 
else for you jumps out as an important, I like this word you've been using, a causal, I, I tend to use one non-local, but, but what else jumps out that might help us get our head around a phenomenon like synchronicity? Well, I first, uh, I'm going to wear my hat of physicist. I don't think that physics is advanced enough to talk about synchronicity at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, science is about order. Uh, what we uh, try to determine is how things uh, evolve in space according to time, how things move and change, uh, transformations in space uh, and time. Uh, there is absolutely no nothing about meaning. Meaning is not part of uh, 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 modern science. It's not part of uh, classical physics. It's not part of uh, science at all. If you mention the term meaning, uh, you're going to be in trouble in science, and you don't want to do that. Mm. So I don't think that anything in science can really shed any light on uh, synchronicity. Uh, Synchronicity is also, according to Jung, something which is very irregular, something which is inconstant, something that happens uh, uh, suddenly, and you cannot uh, cannot predict it. You cannot know that it's going to happen. Plus, uh, what is meaningful for me uh, might not be meaningful for someone else. So how do you measure objectively uh, something uh, like that uh, um, in science? So it's really uh, something which goes beyond science as we do it now. So what we can do only when uh, we talk about trying to bridge uh, um, uh, science and psychology where the dimension of meaning is so important uh, you have to only try to create some bridges uh, uh, on the pillars of all the uh, sacrosanct beliefs that you have in physics. For example, causality. So either space place for a causality in science. <clears throat> and quantum mechanics shows that there is something like that. Yes, mm-hmm. there is place for a causality in quantum, quantum mechanics. You have that all the time. Uh, is there a place for uh, uh, a creative uh, dimension of things? That is something which is a little bit more obscure. Uh, if you go to classical physics, for example, uh, people are mostly interested in uh, causal chains. Uh, try to, uh, um, for example, the the main idea uh, that you have in classical physics was expressed by Pierre Simon de Laplace at the beginning of uh, the 19th century. He was saying, well, if you know the state of the universe, all the particles and all the the forces at play at what moment in time, then uh, with a great uh, intelligence, you would be able to calculate everything uh, moving forward or backward and nothing would be unknown to you. So this kind of uh, belief, which is really central to classical physics uh, is, not really uh, good for creativity uh, because everything is set, if you want. Everything is determined. There's no uh, place for creativity in there. 
You can see that, for example, in uh, the last pages of uh, Newton's optics, uh, he says, for example, uh, as in uh, mathematics, so in uh, natural philosophy, what we need to do if we want to do good physics is to uh, take uh, uh, a phenomenon and just decompose it and analyze it in small pieces so that you can really try to see what is relevant <clears throat> and he spends a lot of time talking about uh, uh, this. And then uh, just at the last, uh, uh, of just uh, after this thought, he said, and synthesis is just the reverse or the opposite. So for me, it tells me that from a psychological standpoint, uh, Newton and a classical physicist are very interested in analysis. They're very interested in trying to uh, find the cause of things and trying to determine all the pieces and elements of things. They're not so much interested in uh, creation, synthesis. They just see it as basically the reverse of the analysis. And I don't think that uh, in classical physics, you have a real space for any, uh, uh, for creation, for any, sense of creation, real creation, um, according do we to- see, Do we see a resistance to the implications of a causality then? Uh, do, we, do we find that this, I would say, expanding area of um, the non-locality, now we're starting to use entanglement in technology, it's gonna be used in quantum computing and quantum internet. Do you think that there's an opening to a causal effects um, or do you think that, that in a way physics is shutting that down and that it'll never sort of be used as a, a, an opportunity to look at the world in a slightly um, sort of less causal way? Yeah, well, quantum mechanics actually is, uh, um, is marking a, 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 um, a turn in physics uh, because uh, Quantum mechanics is going beyond classical uh, causality. It expresses things in a causal way because of the uh, wave function of uh, in quantum mechanics. And so there's really a sense that a causality is uh, central, entanglement is central. According some, to some interpretations of quantum mechanics, really the core of quantum mechanics is entanglement. And this is uh, the, the 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 central piece of quantum mechanics. <clears throat> so it's uh, it's it's something that uh, people, more and more physicists, are um, modern physicists in quantum mechanics, are exploring more and more. <clears throat> they're not so much interested in uh, well, they're interested in the foundation and understanding quantum mechanics, but they're also very interested in what can we do with quantum mechanics? What kind of new technologies can we create? It's mind blowing. We don't understand what it is. There's so many interpretations of quantum mechanics that, uh, uh, I mean, there's a paper by Aidan Cabello, which talks about uh, uh, a map of madness saying that it's really mad. Uh, this, it's really mad to see all the number of interpretations of quantum mechanics. We don't exactly know what quantum mechanics is about. We don't know what the quantum is about. We just know that it works very well. Uh, the formalism of quantum mechanics is uh, 
the most sophisticated you can find, and it's very precise at uh, uh, explaining experiments. But at the same time, the central message is that we have absolutely no clue what's going on. So, so it's very it's very difficult. Uh, at some point, uh, Richard Feynman, Feynman, uh, a Nobel Prize in, in, in physics, said that uh, I can that he believed that nobody could understand quantum mechanics. Nobody knows what it is. But still, all these people are brilliant, and they make all kind of calculations, and they try to create new technologies. More and more technologies are quantum mechanical now. So. Uh, and so you see quantum mechanics used in, uh, in, in with biology. You see quantum mechanics coming, for example, to explain some effects in photosynthesis. Uh, also, the sense of orientation of birds. You see that people are using more and more quantum mechanics in different ways, even if they don't understand what it is about. It's a way of understanding things, which is really very profound. <clears throat> so they use it more and more. Um, one of the examples that I like too is that some people, for example, um, in psychology are using quantum mechanics to explain some biases in the way we think. <clears throat> it's not uh, due to the fact that the brain is uh, a physical quantum mechanical system. It's a fact that the way the quantum logic is very useful to understand the way we do things. And so there's a whole field of quantum cognition uh, that has developed to, that shows that, well, it works pretty well. You use the, math, the quantum <coughs> formalism to, uh, to make decisions uh, and it works pretty well. So it really shows that um, Quantum mechanics is maybe not about uh, things at the microscopic level. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that shows that things are not uh, a yes or a no, black or white, but there is maybe a tension between the two sometimes that you cannot really, I mean, which is difficult to understand because we tend to that well, this is true or this is false. Uh, but with quantum mechanics, uh, everything is basically uh, uncertain, uh, gray. And you would think that this uncertainty and this, this grayness would just um, spoil uh, things. Uh, it certainly spoils reason. And, and causality. Uh, at the same time, it, uh, yeah. And causality, but at the same time, it gives you some malleability. The word is something that you can shape and you can create things. And I really think that uh, this is what is coming actually uh, with quantum mechanics. Uh, the dimension of creativity is coming back because of this uncertainty, because mm -hmm. of the fact that you're not trying to uh, pin down things in space and time. Uh, we're becoming creative uh, with quantum mechanics. Mm. And, uh, <clears throat> and I hope that, well, at some point, this um, quantum mechanics would evolve to, to bring maybe the dimension of meaning. What, what does it mean to create something? And did, do you think, David, you mentioned David Bohm, um, do you think his idea of an implicate and an explicate order might give us some 
sort of physics take on the way the, the collective unconscious might work on on some Jungian ideas? Do you think that, that that's an, a useful way of of separating what is measurable, what is classical, what is causal, which, you know, is in our sort of local context works very, very well. Newton's calculations still work very, very well in the local context. Do you think this idea of an implicate order in which this probabilistic world that we're starting to see more and more is active, uh, even even at our level and even potentially at the cosmological level, not just at a subatomic level, do you think that that an idea that has that sort of humility of the implicate order that it is implicate and therefore we will we will never be able to measure and define and 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 take it into into a classical scientific kind of understanding? Do you think that can help here? Well, I, I'm not I'm not a, <clears throat> a fan of David Bohm. Uh, I need to say. Uh, um, uh, my PhD supervisor is still a friend of mine. He's, he works on uh, David Boom, David Boom's work. So, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think David Boom had something really profound to contribute to to physics and also to psychology. I mean, one of the things that I really respect in what he was doing was. Um, trying to bridge the two, psychology and physics. Not a lot of people do that. He thought, for example, that uh, we should change our way to, uh, we should change language. He was trying to create a, a language called the real mode, where everything, to move away from just our ordinary way, ordinary way of uh, uh, talking about things with uh, this ball is, uh, moving in that direction, with, which is really based on knowns. You uh, wanted to have something which was verb-based. That you can find actually in the Hopi language and other languages. He <clears throat> wanted to change everything into a process. And this is what he did with this implicate order and explicate order. So everything is in flow. There's a kind of flow of things. Everything is, uh, is in process. And so I think this kind of idea is profound. Uh, it's one of the, the major people who talked in this way uh, about the wave nature of reality. He was really thinking that this wave was really uh, 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 there and that it was connecting things causally. Um, <clears throat> um, so is that what he meant by the implicate order? Yeah, he was. I'm not an expert in that field, but you were thinking that there was a kind of uh, order that was just uh, emerging uh, sometimes and creating what we see. And probably it was something that was also manifesting in the psyche. Uh, for me, the, the respect that I have was all uh, with all these people who tried to go beyond the status quo and try to bring new ideas. And I think the implicate order uh, is something that uh, uh, that is very, very nice to, to see. Jung had an idea like that too at some point uh, in the 1950s. He talked about the fact that maybe the psyche, maybe the brain is a transformer station that creates the uh, infinite intensity of things uh, um, that corresponds to basically uh, the psyche into extension and new and frequencies. So he thought that, uh, of course, um, that the universe had a kind of 
that the, the psyche was not limited to, um, to the brain. <clears throat> the brain was just a transformation of things. So you can see that as a kind of uh, idea going the direction of uh, the implicate order. Mm. And there are any other ideas, any other particularly powerful ideas coming out of physics that can penetrate this, this very causal kind of limitations that we have in experimental physics? Anything else that's worth mentioning before we move on? Everything that brings about the, 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 the wave nature of reality is, is going in that direction, I think. And what do you uh, mean when you say that, Christophe? Do you, when you talk about the wave nature of reality. Are you speaking about um, the, the the quantum field? Are you speaking about that in terms of the wave nature of reality? What are you referring to particularly? Well, in quantum mechanics, classical quantum mechanics, the main thing is a wave. The wave of the system, which describes the system, which really evolves according to Schrodinger's equation. So it's really that wave that is making all the trouble. <clears throat> if everything was made of particles, everything would be fine. But the wave is bringing all the uncertainty and all the, the, the connections like entanglement uh, uh, to things being separate are still connected uh, because there is a wave underlying that. And so that's that's what I mean by the wave nature of reality. Thank you. I just wanted to clarify because you you you've mentioned it several times. I just wanted to be sure we the listeners understood what you were, what you were referring to. <clears throat> and uh, so everything that shows that things are not set, uh, that things are not uh, clearly located in space and time, uh, everything that really shows uh, this which are connected to the wave nature of reality, everything in that direction is a step uh, that brings us, well, uh, into complete uh, echoes of territory, mm. uh, if you want. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, good, it's good to talk about it. Uh, this is a kind of thing that you want to, you, you would rather, for example, uh, <clears throat> remove it uh, in a way or the other. For example, there's an interpretation of quantum mechanics called the many words interpretation, which says that uh, uh, when you make a measurement, well, you don't see the wave, you just see one uh, result. You see that particle being there, it's not anywhere else. So where is the wave? <clears throat> so the, the answer to uh, with this interpretation is uh, that, well, when we make the measurement, the universe is splitting in many, 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 possibly an infinite number of ways. And so <clears throat> I will find my particle here, <clears throat> but so another me in another universe is gonna find the particle there. And another person is gonna see uh, uh, the particle there. So, and all these um, um, other me, uh, this infinite number of me's if you want, uh, are gonna uh, leave their own way after that, and there's no way we can connect. So it's a lot of people in quantum mechanics before uh, think that uh, think that it's the way to see quantum mechanics. Uh, that's the main interpretation. I don't like this so much. I don't like the thought that there might be many me's everywhere <laughs> running around. And each time I do something, see something, there's even more me's 
uh, 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 manifesting. <clears throat> that kind of uh, thinking, I think, is very classical. Uh, it is. Uh, it says that whatever can happen will happen. And this is very classical in a, in a sense. We in want, one world or another, it will happen. <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen in another dimension. Yeah. And so it, it's it's a kind of uh, basically getting rid of the wave nature of reality. There is an uncertainty in things. That uncertainty is good. It means that the world is not set. The universe is not set. Nature is not set. And it's uh, interacting with us. There's a kind of reciprocity. Our goal is not just to take things from uh, nature and matter and try to get uh, to try to get a result. It's to interact with it and create something with it. And this is for me what the message of quantum mechanics is. I think that that I have to say, Christoph, I do agree there. And uh, you know, we'll be speaking to several physicists on this show who 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 wouldn't agree with that and who prefer not to give a special place to consciousness in that system um which we you know i completely understand why we want to avoid that because it does open up a whole can of worms but um it does seem looking at the data that unfortunately the interaction of of consciousness with those systems is just very very clearly present in the data so some of these, uh, you know, I, I do love the many worlds uh, interpretation just because it is so extraordinary. It's such a, a bonkers idea that there would actually be these real infinite number of worlds and me's out there uh, rather than just looking at it as a probability that uh, they, some, some people say, is the collapse of the wave function into whatever reality actually does physically happen. Um I want to move on, uh, Christoph, and I want to start thinking about the idea of altered states of consciousness, because I think part of the problem here is the fact that we're so attached to our classical perception, and we, we, we love the fact that we have this sort of shared reality. And I think that some of the most interesting data not only about uh, the world uh, the, and reality, but also about the psyche and and the collective unconsciousness is coming out of data about peak uh, experiences. Um, psychiatrist Stanislav Grof, uh, the founder of transpersonal psychology and, and holotropic breathing, he speaks about this play between the physical world and the psyche. Uh, and I think it's got huge implications for the nature of reality. And he says that, that when we're engaging with these non-ordinary states of consciousness, like psychedelic therapy or engaging with our dreams or altered states through holotropic breathing, he says that the, these meaningful coincidences, these, these synchronicities, they increase in frequency. Could it be, is there any evidence in your experience in physics and psychology even, that support this idea that an altered state of consciousness seems to potentially exacerbate this connection between what Groff calls the interpsychic world and the material world. Do we see any of that in physics through study of altered states? Well, I don't think that physics can, can address any question about synchronicity once yeah. again. 
You mentioned that earlier, and I, I wanted to say earlier, Christoph, I, I completely agree. And in the introduction, you know, I was very, very honest about the fact that that, that we can't get there using using physics kind of language. Sorry, I, I should have said psychology there. Yeah. Well, you, some studies have been made in psychology to, uh, that shows that uh, synchronicity is very frequent uh, in the therapy room. Uh, so it's it's something that is part of uh, therapy. It's really connected to meaning. Meaning is something central to psychology. So it's uh, that's not surprising that uh, something like that would happen in psychology. <clears throat> now about uh, altered state of consciousness. I, I think um, I know that uh, listening to your dreams and trying to do, for example, uh, active imagination. It's a kind of method created by Jung to consciously getting to uh, uh, in touch with uh, the collective unconscious. Uh, so for example, all the red book uh, that, he, uh, that he wrote and that was published um, uh, a few years ago, all the black books that just came out a few months ago, our active imagination. So this kind of uh, uh, method to get in touch with the collective unconscious is of course gonna come and maybe uh, 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 show up sometimes outside uh, in reality. And so synchronicity might increase. <clears throat> so it depends on how you do, uh, uh, how you approach these uh, methods. If there is, uh, uh, a kind of necessary ethical dimension, which is to follow what meaning is pushing you to do, then I think uh, uh, they can increase. If it's just about uh, uh, um, getting to, trying to mine uh, uh, the collective unconscious and use it, I, I don't think it's gonna work very well. Uh, I think that there's something about uh, the collective unconscious, which is really sacred, um, which is which really involves uh, a sense of respect. It's it's a partner. It's like uh, nature, if you want, except that we don't really that very much. But in quantum mechanics, you have a kind of vis-a-vis. -vis, you have something uh, to to interact with. You have a kind of reciprocity uh, in quantum mechanics. <clears throat> and you have to do the same thing with uh, the collective unconscious. You cannot just go there and say, oh, I'm going to use this and do that. There needs to be a kind of uh, ethical uh, dimension to what you're doing. So if any method to, uh, to get to an altered state of consciousness goes to that point, I think it might increase the frequency of synchronicities, yes. And do you agree with Jung in the sense that he considered meaning even if not in the scientific sense but but in the in a psychological sense and in the, the context of therapy to be as rigorous and objective as logical deduction do you do you, do you subscribe to that or do you think it's just too problematic scientifically to see it as an objective sort of faculty well the thing is uh, meaning is very vague uh, it's not uh, subjective. 
it's there can be a kind of objective meaning to things i believe but it's it's vague it's it, it's not something that you can address in a very objective uh consensual way Some people will see different meanings to things <clears throat> but at the same time you can see the effect of meaning if you follow meaning uh, you can see the effect on your life um, so it's something which is very important uh, it helps you create your own life. It helps you make sense of it. It helps you uh, suddenly uh, give you something to hang on when suddenly you're suffering. A lot of people, for example, suffer, and if you give them meaning, uh, uh, they will just go through all kind of very tough things. <clears throat> so meaning is very important. It's something that really helps you live. But uh, in physics, you don't really have the dimension of meaning. People just look at, okay, what happened before and what, what's going to happen now? So you just try to predict things. So there's no not really that dimension of meaning. Two difficult worlds to bridge. There is no doubt about it. What about I mean, the, Jung's position on consciousness, uh, Christoph? Did it evolve? Did he even speak about what he believed the, 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 the answer to the problem of consciousness was? Did he ever make any statements? Did it change towards the end of his career? Well, he was not very... He didn't have a firm position on, on consciousness. I don't think so. Uh, he felt that consciousness was something meaningful. <laughs> so immediately here was something very vague. Uh, he felt that uh, the birth of consciousness was something really uh, almost the universe was created when uh, consciousness was created. Um, there is something really profound about con uh, consciousness. We wouldn't be able to see anything without it. So when people try to explain consciousness uh, with a kind of outside perspective, it's always troubling to me to see, but what is outside consciousness? How can you uh, go around it and look at it in an objective way? I don't think it can work. <clears throat> I think, for example, uh, you cannot you cannot talk about consciousness in a classical way. It's not something moving forward. It's not it's not a ball. It's not a rolling ball or something like that. For Jung, there was a kind of uh, he was using quantum mechanics to describe a kind of complementarity between consciousness and the unconscious. There's a kind of conscious and conscious uh, duality in the same way that you have wave particle duality in quantum mechanics. So something can be uh, conscious in one way, but it might be extremely unconscious in other ways. So there's always this kind of uh, um, really uh, very complex way of looking at consciousness. Uh, you cannot explain consciousness without the unconscious. And at the same time, when we talk about the unconscious, we always say that it's what's not conscious, but it's not, it's not quite it's not quite symmetrical <laughs> and so it's it, you should you should really give uh, some kind of uh, reality to this uh, thing which is not conscious that actually give rise uh, gives rise to consciousness so there is um, 
he was he was always thinking that there was um, you couldn't um, explain consciousness without the unconscious. Uh, this is where uh, things come from, <clears throat> and the unconscious for him was not probably uh, connected to the brain. Uh, I know that in neuroscience, a lot of uh, uh, researchers think that it's a kind of emergent process in the brain. Uh, suddenly, well, in, during the evolution, something like uh, consciousness evolved and, and we uh, became who we are. Uh, <clears throat> Jung was uh, very keenly aware that uh, the brain is very important. And he was really uh, saying that that's, well, actually I mentioned the fact that he thought that the brain was a kind of transformer station. <clears throat> I mean, for him, uh, uh, the brain was shaping consciousness. But did consciousness uh, uh, was, was it created by uh, the brain? I don't think so. And once again, we come to the problem of creativity. What is creating things exactly? Uh, do we think that, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, classical physics or even uh, complexity theory can explain <clears throat> um, uh, uh, all the uh, everything about consciousness and the origin of consciousness? A lot of people think this is a way, but uh, for me, I, I would rather uh, go in the direction of a kind of animate universe, something which where the there's a kind of proto-consciousness or some kind of awareness or something uh, in the world that does exist and that becomes refocused in us. So you think uh, that if, if Jung was alive today, he'd probably be some form of panpsychist. That, 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 so. Right, yeah. interesting. Um, Christoph, you mentioned to me off-air that you believe we're in the next transition of, of sort of the next scientific revolution has begun. Uh, there's a, this word paradigm is thrown away, is thrown around a lot at the moment, you know, oh, new paradigm, paradigm this, paradigm that. But, you know, it, it is probably the right word here uh, if we're not going to use scientific revolution. What have you noticed in the scientific community zeitgeist that gives you this idea that we're moving into a different scientific paradigm? Well, <clears throat> I think that in a sense, we're still in the same paradigm, which is a scientific revolution. Uh, but this revolution is incomplete. I think we, classical physics gave us uh, rationality, reason, uh, all kind of tools that are pretty amazing, uh, but at the same time, it's extremely reductionist. It's all about analysis. And I think that we turn the corner uh, with quantum mechanics and maybe relativity. Uh, suddenly things uh, uh, became more about this, well, wave nature of reality and what can we do? What can we create? It's no longer about analysis, it's about synthesis. Our whole system of science has been uh, breaking apart in different branches. And I hope that uh, something like uh, the quantum hypothesis and maybe the idea of the unconscious 
<clears throat> is going to bring things back together. And um, one of my uh, hope, and this is pure speculation, is that we're going to recreate the universe, cosmos, that we lost when the Aristotelian philosophy uh, was shattered. <clears throat> we were in part of a cosmos where um, where um, where man had a meaning. There was meaning for man to be there. It was man was really at the center of the universe. And I think that quantum mechanics can help us uh, in that direction. Uh, Pauli was uh, thinking in this way, thought that uh, with quantum mechanics, with microphysics, we had uh, come back to this original sense that we were creative in our own world. We were becoming, uh, because we were, when we were looking at things, we were shaping things as well. And so he thought that there was uh, uh, this sense of um, uh, wonderment in the, the universe that we could really uh, recreate things. And so for me, I see, for example, that uh, quantum mechanics is beginning to spread everywhere. It's spreading in psychology, uh, not just uh, the physical science of quantum mechanics, but the formalism, the way of thinking, uh, the logic of quantum mechanics is spreading everywhere in psychology. We talk about the connection of life and uh, quantum mechanics. Probably, most likely, uh, that's my opinion, <clears throat> uh, people wouldn't be alive uh, if there was no quantum mechanics. For example, we, we know that there might be some quantum mechanical effects in the, the act of breathing. Uh, when we breathe, there's a good chance that we would die. Uh, uh, if you just uh, listen to classical physics, but uh, some quantum effects are here to basically make us alive. <clears throat> so the whole uh, uh, process of life is rooted in quantum mechanics, most likely. Mm. So classical physics is not a good solution if you want to be alive. Uh, you need to think in a very different way. And, and also... Uh, I think that it's gonna change a lot of things. People in physics are not wondering, oh, we have to understand uh, the rationality of quantum mechanics before we can do anything. They just <clears throat> open the door and say, what can we do with it? What can we do with it? And this is really uh, the, 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 I mean, the sign of a revolution for me. Uh, Instead of thinking too much about the past, well, you're trying to do new things and so really, let's see you, what happens. You mentioned the word, you know, reductionist before. That 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 just the scientific method in itself and the the necessity for uh, experimental data and measurement uh, it does, you know it has led to the complete denial of the existence of what is beyond the material, uh, if there is anything beyond the material. Um, and I, you know, I really like this idea that it's not a new paradigm, it's a paradigm that needs to be completed. And that quantum mechanics is a probabilistic understanding of reality uh, actually opens the door to for that last missing bit uh, in the scientific revolution, what a beautiful idea! But but I'm interested in this idea of the resistance um, from 
the the causal scientists, people trying to hang on to a causal classical understanding of the world, uh, despite all of this progress in the last 120 years. Who was it who cynically paraphrased the Planck principle saying that science progresses one funeral at a time? I think it was I think it was Thomas Kuhn. Um, if we look at the history of science, are such paradigm changes peaceful and gradual based on an updating of facts or the emergence of new technology, for example? Or do we tend to just have a phoenix effect where the old ideas are just going to die hard and stubborn and the new generation will will bring them forward intuitively? What's your opinion? Is it going to be a smooth transition, this one, or are we just going to see the old hardcores dying? Well, I hope I hope it's not. Uh, <clears throat> I hope nobody is going to die. But uh, at the same time, we're all going to uh, die, Christoph. <laughs> these are all uh, hard to die. I mean, <clears throat> people can give their life for their beliefs. Uh, you can have wars uh, because of beliefs. I mean, if you just look at, for example, what happened during the scientific revolution, I mentioned the fact that Copernicus. Uh, uh, suggested that maybe the sun is at the center of the universe, not the earth. And people said, yeah, okay, uh, no, no big deal. <clears throat> it was in, uh, I think, 1452 and uh, 1552, uh, no, 1542, sorry. And then 50 years later, uh, Galileo came and he was in house arrest uh, because of his ideas. And Bruno, Bruno was actually killed wasn't he by the church yeah he was killed burned at stake because he was uh saying that there were many universes well many words and also uh, an infinite universe <clears throat> someone like um it was a, a golden age uh, golden age of witch hunt uh, kepler had to go to the trial of his mother who was uh, uh well people thought that she was a witch and so she was saved i think but uh, it was really the, uh, there was a witch hunt at that time, and so the witch hunt killed maybe a hundred thousand uh, people, uh, not just women. Uh, and and so it was also a time of uh, war. I mean, if you look at, for example, Descartes, we didn't talk about Descartes, but you were. I know you, to... love, I know you love Descartes in particular. <laughs> yeah. You went to the crowning of uh, of a prince in, in in Germany. Well, what was what is Germany now? And so after that, and this is where he had this big vision of uh, um, a kind of universal, universal mathematics. He had a kind of uh, big dreams at the beginning of his career, and it really pushed him to to do what he did uh, actually. But at the same time uh, that uh, he had this vision, well, it was the shortly after it was the beginning of the Thirty-Year War in Europe, <clears throat> with about seven million casualties in 30, 30 years. It was a massive uh, bloodshed, and so at the, at the at the end of this war, uh, the Catholic uh, Church was completely ruined and uh, partially destroyed. And so this is after that time that people like Newton could express their ideas. <clears throat> so the whole uh, movement of things, uh, not just science, is uh, sometimes very, very bloody. I mean, 
And have we matured? Have we matured since then uh, as a society? I mean, if it lets, you know, I was thinking about the Phoenix effect, this idea that a, a, a great power, a great way of thinking, a great empire uh, needs to crumble completely before a new paradigm can emerge in its place. This idea, do you think it's going to be like that forever? Or do you think as we mature, we may learn how to make peaceful, evidence-based transitions uh, from one way of thinking to another? I mean, that that's my main question here. Well, maybe. Uh, my point about quantum mechanics, for example, is that it proposes a different way of thinking. Things don't have to be either black or white. Uh, you don't have to fight uh, for, uh, for things and say that one is right and the other one is wrong. Two realities can coexist at the same time and, and create something very productive. Uh, I don't think, I don't think uh, uh, um, that we need to, to fight for everything. You can disagree with someone, but at the same time, you can, uh, you can find maybe a way to, to live with that person. Even in quantum mechanics, you have some uh, paradoxes about that. You can disagree about what you observe in reality <clears throat> because reality is not set. It's not there. It's not uh, determined. Uh, but two people who see uh, the same thing may disagree on what they see, and that's fine. It's a very different way of looking at things. And if people realize that it's okay to be like that, well, maybe it can change things in the world. I don't know. But so far, I don't think that it's working very well. It's either black or white. You're right or you're wrong. There's no in-between. Mm. This is, once again, what I was saying about the wave nature of reality, which is keeping things uh, together. Um, you can... This is where creativity comes comes from when two different uh, people come together and create something new. Uh, this is really that sense of creativity which has disappeared uh, uh, with uh, the age of reason. And I hope wow. that this reason can change a little bit and opens a little bit more. Christophe, I, I think that is a beautiful place to end today's uh, deep and wonderful conversation. Christoph, thank you so, so much for sharing your extraordinary range of knowledge in the history of science and this difficult marriage, this controversial and problematic marriage between the subjectivity of the mind in psychology and the very sort of nuts and bolts approach of, in physics. Um, I do believe, and I strongly, and I'm so grateful for your insights, that this a causality, as you've been calling it today, and this this wave-like nature of of matter, offers us a very big uh, clue and a, and, a, and an open door to making this this passage into a. a, a into completing, as you said, this the, what what Einstein noticed was was incomplete, and and let's leave it on that positive note that if we can continue to bring this sort of information to the public and and both Jung's ideas and these this understanding of of modern physics, 
I think that that we may well see a day where that kind of ability to coexist, that various possibilities can coexist without too much friction, can come into play. So, Christoph, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.